You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this is Harper Audio Presents. With me today is Ryan Gaddis, discussing his novel, All Involved. Ryan is a novelist, curator, creative writing instructor at Chapman University, and member of the urban art crew, Uglar. He is the author of Rue Kick Kick and The Big Bad Blimp and Kung Fu High School, which was acquired by the Weinstein Company and chosen as a Discover selection by Barnes & Noble. His latest book, All Involved, publishing by Echo Press on April 7, 2015, is a fictional tour de force about which Dennis Lehane has said, All Involved is a monumental achievement. Ryan Gaddis takes the reader into the broken, outraged heart of Los Angeles during the 92 riots and doesn't blink once at what he sees. So that's what Dennis Lehane had to say. I can tell you that this novel is a heart-stopping piece of creative writing told over the course of six days, using the L.A. riots as the jumping-off point and following the lives of 17 exceptionally well-drawn characters. Gang members, firefighters, nurses, law enforcement officers, and graffiti artists all interconnected and somehow related to Ernesto Vera, whose murder in the opening pages of the novel sets up the dramatic sequence of events. Ryan joins us from a studio in L.A. where he lives. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Anna Maria. This is wonderful. What does it feel like to be compared to the novelists Richard Price, George Belicanos, Dennis Lehane, and your novel being compared to The Wire as it's been in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, honestly, it's 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 head spinning. I, I I'm still processing it. I I'm such a fan of of all of those people you've mentioned, and certainly of The Wire, which I think is just an exceptional piece of storytelling. Uh, it's it's humbling, and and I'm honored, and and I get a weird, fuzzy feeling in my stomach. And <laughs> beyond that, I don't know how much I can tell you. Now, you live in L.A. How, how long have you lived there? Gosh, I've lived in L.A. since about 2008. And you teach at Chapman. Is it college or university? It's university, and it's down in Orange. Uh, so that's actually in Orange County, just south of here. Right. So you're a writing instructor. And I thought that one common piece of advice that was given to writers is write about what you know. What happened? Were you were you sick the day that your professor wrote that on the blackboard? This, this well, is a very different world, is it not? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I I'm originally from Colorado. You know, I grew, really? I grew up the, in Colorado Springs, uh, part of a military family. So um, th- this world in Los Angeles, and certainly you know, explored through seventeen different characters, is certainly not what I know. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the things that I tend to say to my students when I'm teaching them is, you know, write a bit of what you know. But beyond that, just do great research. Listen to people. Talk to people. You know, really delve in and, and, and find that background that speaks to you and helps connect to, you know, what you do best as a writer. And, and I think, um, I'd like to think I, I, I achieved that with this book. So what do you hope will happen to people when they read your novel? I, I, it's so <laughs> No, seriously, it's so powerful, and it is such a specific piece of writing, and it, it draws you into such a specific world that I, I just wonder 
where, how you want all of us to feel when we come out the other end? Sure. Uh, you know, I think that's an excellent question. And one I'm sorry to say I, d I don't have <laughs> an absolute answer for because I think, you know, readers definitely need to be able to come out of that journey however they're going to come out of it and, and experience uh, whatever they experience. But what I'd like um, is for people's understanding about the depth of Los Angeles, the breadth of Los Angeles, the types of people who live here is actually expanded as a result of that. And, you know, I think in a way, you know, All Involved doesn't just show you parts of L.A. that most people have rarely seen before. I think it shows parts of people uh, we haven't seen before either. It doesn't reduce gang members to caricatures or simplify their choices. You know, I think you you get to see every character as as a full and complex human being. And and for me, that's a you know, the word human is a really important part of that because I think it's really easy to to give in to fear or make presumptions, you know, about what people go through and, and the choices they make, and, and especially in regard to criminal activity. But it's another thing entirely when you have a sense of context. And, and I really hope, that, you know, that's what people can get here is, is the sense that, you know, as much as the media perhaps would love us to think that the 92 riots were black and white, they really weren't. You know, there was an awful lot of gray going on in that chaos, certainly that, that people were able to take advantage of. And I, I just, if a reader can walk away with just a little bit of that scope, uh, you know, I'd like to think I've done a, a decent job. Yeah, I would certainly say that that was my reaction, was that even as I witness folks having to make these horrible choices and in the end, in some cases, doing horrible things, I understood them. I understood that in so many cases, it was the lesser of two evils, and it was a sense of family and pride. And, and th there were, I understood the motivation, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and so I think you were successful in that way. And you were certainly successful, I would think, for many people to have exposed, you know, sort of the day-to-day -day lives of, of people that we, we rarely see in Los Angeles. So I think that that's remarkable. Um, the novel is framed over six consecutive days, and you use the L.A. riots as backdrop, and your story is its remarkably complex with numerous interconnected characters caught up in, in all these extraordinary circumstances. How did you conceive it? I mean, where, where were you when you thought, oh, I really want to tell these people's stories, and how did you plot it, and what was your writing process? Because I, I can hardly even imagine how... You kept everything going and in many cases joined them up. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Um, I, I think it, the beauty of it, it was, it was an ongoing process. Actually, when I, when I first started writing this, it, it was a, originally conceived as a novella. So I was only really? thinking... You yeah, really? Oh, and you had all, but all the characters? I had the three Veda uh, siblings. Okay. So I had Ernesto, I had uh, Lupe, uh, also known as Payasa, I had Ray, also known as Lomasco, and I, I felt that that was fairly strong. Um, it had been in, in an inordinate amount of time since my, my main agent in London had actually sold something I'd written. You know, you mentioned Rue, uh, Kick Kick, you mentioned Kung Fu High School, and, and those, I mean, gosh, came out uh, 10 years ago or more. And so I had quite, quite a dry spell. It was really a departure, I think, to, to, to go with the novella, but it was spawned by um, 
being approached by Black Hill Press to write a novella for them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel as if I knew the form very well, so I started reading them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just had so much fun, I think, in, in, in some small way. Uh, I fell in love with literature all over again. And, and once I had written day one, I thought, gosh, you know, this could work. I could write, you know, a, a novella for each day. Oh, you know, day I one, see. Two, okay, three. that makes yeah. sense. And I, I think it's really beautiful, I think, with the way that Echo, uh, you know, HarperCollins is publishing the book. Um, when you turn it on its side, they have black pages yeah. for the days, and you can actually see the sections. And they're all roughly the same length. So one, two, three, four, five, six. And I think it, I'd like to think it, it, it makes the book a little more approachable as well because you can, you can see the chunks, the sections. It's not as scary as a 400-page book. Beyond that, I would say, j- just to jump back to speaking about process, um, I, I did almost two years of, of interviews with, with people um, who had, you know, lived here in 92, lived through the riots. And uh, what they were able to provide in terms of research and background was, was absolutely invaluable, not, not to mention, I think, giving, you know, giving my ear something to play with in terms of hopefully making 17 different distinguishable voices. And as I was writing it, uh, my my wife actually has the most incredible plot brain of any human. Oh, I've really? Ever met. Yeah. So she helped you with that oh, part. Oh my goodness! So, absolutely indispensable because um, she. I, I would actually read it to her. I would write whatever I wrote during the day. It might be one chapter. It might be two. And when she got home from work, I would read it to her. And you know, she was she was raised on Dickens and Austen and um, Agatha Christie. And so sometimes she would stop me and say, okay, hang on. How does this, simply by hearing it, how does this connect to this? What about this over here? And sometimes she would even call me out like, oh, I can see where you're you're going with this. This is going to connect to this. So so I think in a way, you know, uh, my wife being a huge part of the, you know, what what helped create the framework and and the, the, the characters and the web in which they're connected to each other. But it was also being able to speak to um, you know, this, this quite frankly, um, mystifyingly large group of people that I was so blessed uh, to speak to, um, former firemen, former gang members, former nurses, you know, and be able to actually just ask them, hey, how was this? What was this like? What about that? And then I think it just, there, there was a, just a sense of kismet to it. And I, I wish I could say it some other way, but I just don't know. Uh, how to? It, it just connected. It just fell into place, and you know, I, I, I'm just very lucky. Now, what's your wife's profession? Uh, she's currently an elementary school teacher at a performing arts school uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, but um, she's also a lawyer and used to work for uh, the DA's office. Yeah, so she's got she a has mind this like a steel trap. Indeed, indeed, this incredible, you know, legal background. Um, and so, so once you realized that you would make it basically a novella for every day, hmm. how long did it take to complete? I, I would say purely in terms of writing time, probably about four months. You are kidding. No. That, you wrote that? And were you <laughs> teaching as well? I was, yes. Oh, my goodness. And in the middle of it, or almost the middle of it, uh, you know, when I first wrote day one, I would sent it to... Uh, to my agent, Lizzie Kramer, in, in London, and she's represented me since, goodness, since I was 22 years old, and I'm 36 now. And <laughs> uh, 
you know, I, I thought she's going to hate this. She's from London. She won't get it. She won't like it. And she wrote back within a day with two other readings from people in the agency who were absolutely bowled over by it. And her first sentence recommendation, actually, it was more a demand. You absolutely have to write the rest of this. This and is a did, novel. And you did it's so, not so a novella. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I, I'm a bit of an auditory learner. So I, I was just lucky to have spoken to too many, so many people. Uh-huh. You know, that that once I had those voices, I just found ways to kind of filter them and play with them. And uh, it, it just had this remarkable fluidity when, when I was writing it, almost if, as if it were pouring out of me. And I've, you know, I, I, I think I've, I mean, published three books, but written a lot more than that. And, and it never goes that way. I was very, very lucky. And I think uh, the most remarkable turning point possibly was after I'd written day two, I was really in the flow. I was really excited. Um, the, the, the characters just felt so alive to me. They kept presenting new problems that I always wanted yeah. to tackle in another section. Um, but actually, I was, I was dragged away to attend a, a wedding uh, in Hawaii, a destination wedding. And I, I, <laughs> I must say I was a truly horrible <laughs> partner and, and soon-to-be husband at that time. You writing on napkins the entire time? Well, well, I just said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I can't go. And, you know, she, of course, wouldn't have that, rightfully so. Uh, and, we, you know, we ended up there. It was a, a wonderful trip, but, f- but for another, you know, perhaps really uh, important reason of kismet, I met um, a, f- a retired L.A. fireman there. No and way. he actually accosted me during cocktail hour <laughs> because he had heard that I was writing about gang members and he wasn't happy about it. And he, and he got up in my face. Really? You know, he really um, sort of he saying, wanted answers. I don't, I don't think their, their story should be told. What was, his, what was his concern? I think that was a big part of it, but it was also that he felt it would be unbalanced you know, to write about the riots and only to write about gang members, as far as he, he was concerned, was, was a grave error. You know, I, I needed to write about first responders. I needed to write about, you know, you know, people who actually worked as hard as they possibly could to get the city under control. And I think the beauty of it is, it, you know, I just I listened and, you know, within about 15 or 20 minutes, I think I'd managed to kind of turn him around. And I just said, I would love to sit down with you. I would love to talk to you and just hear what you have to say. And because of one of those discussions, when, when he... He mentioned a number of very small details uh, that just sparked my imagination. And, and one of the big ones was that the Navy SEALs uh, do uh, their combat medic internships with the Los Angeles Fire Department. Yeah. That one, I just it just blew my mind, you know. And, and to also hear from him that, hey, you know, uh, we're the most overworked, you know, city workers in L.A. We do... Uh, EMT work, you know, emergency medical services, uh, and we put out fires and we pick up bodies for the coroner's office because they don't have a big enough budget. And so to hear that they have these three fantastically difficult jobs involving life and death and destruction, um, I just, I, I knew I had to change day three. And, and I think at that time I was also feeling uh, that it would be really important to change, change the tone just a little bit to go away from the gang story, give, uh, you know, I was already going to write a nurse, you know, but it, it just fell into place uh, with bringing in Gloria and and Anthony just just came on from that. It, it was yeah, they're so they're so poignant in relief of mm-hmm. of of what we read before and after. It it really is is quite nice. 
So tell us about your work with Uglar and 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 how Uglar influences your writing and and what you know sure. murals mean to you because I, I I believe that that's likely to to really be influential, right? Oh, absolutely. I think in a way it's it's one of the signposts of my life. I think you know I came to a fork in the road when I met the guys in Uglar, and rather than keep going the same direction I'd always been going, I decided to to turn. And, and and try something new, even though it it, it terrified me. So tell us a little, just back us up a little bit, and and give sure. us an overview as to what Uglar is and, and what you guys do. Oh sure, it's a group of five artists, including myself. Uh, they're all visual artists. I'm a writer. Um, a number of them um, have significant experience with graffiti, but nowadays we are only doing murals, and we are. Uh, accredited with the city of Los Angeles, uh, which actually recently uh, decriminalized murals. They were illegal for some time. Wow. I think it was only last year uh, that they finally took down that ridiculous ordinance. And what we try to do, I think, more than anything, is, is try to capture you know, the many different cultures uh, within Los Angeles and yet still stay true to Los Angeles mural tradition. You know, there certainly was a time when L.A. was called the mural capital of the world. Um, and you had, you know, Diego Rivera, you had Siqueiros, you know, painting beautiful, you know, priceless murals all over the city. And, and what we're hoping to do is just be part of, you know, ushering in a new era where art doesn't just speak to people, but it, it lives in their neighborhoods. It, 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 you know, actively encourages engagement and, and really helps change uh, the look of places. I can honestly say that all involved never happens without me being an Uglar. I just think they're, they're so completely locked together. That's you know, the lovely. way that they took me in, challenged me, you know, almost uh, really provided me with an artistic family, uh, you know, and, and I so frequently felt out of my depth uh, and I had no choice but to grow. It's 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 just been everything, you know. It, it's it's always been an experiment. Um, it certainly hasn't been without its difficulties and me making tons of mistakes. But what I can solidly say is that they've they've really blessed me with a sense of the city that I, I never had before, yeah. and I never would have gotten without them. I think I understand the texture of the city now. I understand how it works, and and it never would have happened with it without SB and 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 Steve and Evan and Chris. There's just no way. That is so lovely. What are you working on now? I'm playing uh, with some ideas, uh, but I think I will absolutely be returning to L.A. What I'd love to do is, is try to explore, you know, maybe another unexplored part uh, of the city, you know, something that we just don't really see in literature or, or film and TV. Uh, and I've been, I've been really lucky kind of uh, talking to a new group of folks and seeing how to do that. Terrific. Now, I want to ask you a few questions sure. from the perspective of a reader, you know, the, okay. the writer as reader. Got it. What book would you recommend to a 13-year-old boy? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, the first thing that springs to mind, I guess, is a, and it's a fairly visceral one, is, is To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I read that right around 12 or 13. Um, another one, and I don't know if it's too early for for a 13-year-old, but Cannery Row by John Steinbeck oh. has always been one of my absolute favorites. And I 
you know, I read it in high school, I think, over one of my summers. It wasn't an assignment. I, I just picked it up at the library and I read it. And, and it left such a mark on me in terms of in terms of helping me understand the lives of other people in other places. Yeah, that's a good one for that. All right, now, were you to be banished to a desert island <laughs> and you could pick up only three books? Sure. It's tough because I would love, I would love to say Ask the Dust by mm. John Fonte. Okay, yeah. Um, but, the, you know, if, if, if it counts as a series, I would say the Bandini Quartet. All right. You know, Road to Los Angeles, Dreams in Bunker Hill, uh, you know, the, the, the other books in that uh, that have the same character. Um, probably Farewell, My Lovely by oh. Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. <laughs> uh, gosh, you know, just what, what he did with the English language, the way he created such a distinct tonality of Los Angeles. It always blows my mind. I reread it almost every year. Is that right? Um, yeah. I would also say, oh, it's a tough one. But I would say the third book would, would have to be The Galton Case by Ross MacDonald. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, wow. It's, uh, it, it's pretty special. I mean, Ross MacDonald wrote a, a number of noir mysteries. Uh, but that particular one, I think he really hits hits the apex of of his of his plot, which is always that yeah, crime in the present has roots in the past, mm. and it's 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 a special book. I I believe I might be wrong, but I think David Fincher just bought the rights to it a little oh. while ago, which which I'm personally incredibly excited about because I think he's I think a that's heck a good of a marriage, filmmaker. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's the perfect place to stop and say thank you so very much <laughs> for this lovely conversation. It's been it's been so much fun, and congratulations on a terrific book. Thank you so much. So now we think that this heart-stopping piece of fiction is just too good to keep to ourselves, so we're going to share excerpts of the audiobook recording of All Involved over the next six weeks. Each Tuesday, Harper Audio Presents will publish a special All Involved podcast featuring an excerpt from the book, one each from the six days in the novel, and all with an introduction to the character and scene. The novel contains profane language and some violence and is not intended for children. If you have children listening, you'll want to turn the podcast off now. We'll serialize a children's book later in the year, and this is not for them. So, for the adults in the audience, let's get started with Day One, Wednesday. Ryan, can you please set up the murder of Ernesto Vera that, that opens the book and, and tell us about uh, Payasa and the scene where she goes to see his body. Sure. Um, I think with Ernesto, um, he's very much a bright light as a character. He's strong and honorable. He, he gets on with the daily difficulties of his life all, while always wanting something more, I think, which is about as human as it gets. Uh, but when he passes away in the first few pages of the book, you know, of, a victim of... A vicious retribution from another gang, uh, basically targeted at his two younger siblings who actually are in a gang while he is not. You know, I think that single moment kind of acts like uh, a lit wick uh, in the book, and everything that comes after is, a, is just a series of explosions that just really connects 
all 17 of the characters in the book. You know, I think it puts uh, Payasa and her crew on a path to revenge, which in turn will grow to encompass all the other characters. And in a way, I think even if these other characters are never aware that they're connected to Ernesto and, and what happened that first night, they are. As far as uh, Payasa, she's the middle child of, of the three Vera children, all of whom uh, have sections on day one. She's the only female recognized as, as a gang member in the book, and she plays that game, I think, using her brain more than brawn. She's conscious. She pays attention. She plans ahead, uh, and she has to, I think, because otherwise she'd find it uh, difficult to gain respect in this deeply macho world. And, you know, up until this night when the book starts, she has been peripheral to gang business, but Ernesto's death puts her squarely in the middle of it, and she has to make the biggest decision of her life uh, in order to revenge what happened to her older brother. I think uh, this section starts with her having heard the news about what happened and immediately actually thinking that it's her younger brother, Ray, who is completely wild and, and, and known to really fly off the chain. Uh, he's also known as, as Lil Mosco. When she finds out that it wasn't Ray, who obviously had it coming, but it, but it was actually Ernesto, her older brother, and the guy who helped raise her when her father died. Yeah, I think she goes to quiet pieces. You know, Ernesto wasn't in a gang, but he, he paid for being related to her and, and to Ray. And we join her in the car with Clever, Apache, and Big Fate, her fellow gang members, on their way to the scene of Ernesto's murder. And here is narrator... Marisol Ramirez reading from day one from the novel All Involved. Three. The drive over in Apache's cutlass is the longest two minutes of my life. My left leg shakes like I don't know what, and only putting my hand on my knee makes it stop. But that's when the other one starts up, and I'm like, fuck it, and just stare out the window at the mailboxes going by fast, at the front doors caged with bars. Everything's locked up good and tight. I don't blame them. It's not so dark that you can't see smoke over the tops of the houses and no shit still burning in the distance. I remind myself to breathe as Clever parks one street over from the alley and me, Fate, and the Lil Serrato homie cut between houses on the boardwalk and come up into an alley with garages on both sides. The air is still here, like a bunch of people been holding their breath till we came. I'm too hot, so I undo the buttons on my flannel till it's blowing out behind me, and I only got my wife beater left as a shield. Normally we'd roll in, see what we can see and roll out quick. But we got time tonight. Even if somebody called the sheriffs, they ain't coming for a while. Not tonight. Tonight, the streets are ours. Clever's right behind us with a flashlight and some of them bags with zippers already open and prepared. Clever's an all-star for shit like this. We sent him to L.A. Southwestern College for crime scene investigation last year. He's almost got his A.A. I mean... Part of you doesn't ever want him to use what he learned. But that's the crazy life. Soon or late, it's somebody's turn to feel the cut. 
and you hate it when it happens to others in your clica. But you hate it more when it happens to you. I felt it twice already. For a cousin and mi padre gone down. Now that spinning wheel landed on me again. It's my turn. Again. And I need Clever and his answers. I need him fast. I tap fate on the elbow. He knows for what. He shines his watch's face at me. Still got over an hour and fifteen before Lil Mosco goes Tasmanian devil. That's if we're lucky. Homie's already locked down the alley on both ends. Ranger, Apache, and Apache's cousin also are guarding up the way. Like soldiers, you know? I can't see far enough down the other side to know who's down there. But they're there. Four long knives of shadows pointing up the alley because of the softball field lights a few blocks over. Which is weird because I can't even imagine anyone playing a game with the city burning up like it is. But whatever. It ain't my electricity. The alley is wide enough for two compact cars, maybe. Nothing else. The back sides of wooden houses on either side are old as fuck, like 1940s, and rotting at their drain pipes. Some garages are separate from houses, and between them there's mattresses, old couches, and all the other shit people don't want in front or on the lawn. It's definitely that depressing kind of place no owner ever thinks you'll see. The backs of houses nobody bothers to paint. All around us, the streets are watching. Blank faces tucked up in the shadows of garages. Scared faces acting like they ain't scared. A couple look familiar, and I mark them in my head. One's a nurse, though, still with hospital blues on. She flinches a little when I look at her. Beside her, there's a shuffling black bum I don't recognize from the neighborhood. He's short with a cane, and he's moving toward the body like he's curious. When he sees me eye him, he says to me, Hey, what happened here? I don't even break stride. Somebody get this eyeballing motherfucker out of here. Feels like I spit it more than I say it. Fate nods back behind us, and some soldier must have branched off to take care of it because I hear a quick scuffle but nothing worth paying attention to. I'm already focused on something else. As we walk up on my big brother's body, it looks too small to me. Like, his shoulders are too small. And I always remember them being wide enough to carry me around and pretend he was a horse when I was just a little chavalita. I don't flinch when I see his face. But I stop. I stop hard. That's because Ernesto's face is busted the fuck up. I mean, it's his face, but it's not. Not no more. Both his eyes are blown out like a boxer took shots on him, all methodical and shit. Grip from the alley floor is pressed into long wounds on his cheeks, into his mouth. Little bits of sand, tiny pebbles. One of his front teeth is turned all the way around. His cheeks caved in. He's missing an ear. That's him, the little homie says. But he doesn't have to.
Shit, it's fucking obvious. I don't say that, though. I'm all trapped inside my head. I'm looking down at my big brother who doesn't look so big. I work my jaw, and it pops. Ernesto was taller than that, I think. Stupid, I know. What with everything else I see. You can't help that shit. The thoughts just come. Unoriginal shit just bubbling up. And my skin's prickling. That's when I realize I'm sweating hard. He's still wearing his uniform, my big brother. He's wrapped up in dark and dirt and still drying blood. On this whole busted-up excuse for an alley, there's only one tree tall enough to put its shadows on him, and it's swaying back and forth, pulling this dark outline up and down his leg like a blanket, like it's trying to tuck him in or something. Worse than that, he's wearing the cowboy boots I got him for Christmas two years ago. Black leather and an elm-colored heel and sole. Real classy shit. He never wore him at work, only to walk to and from. For some reason, that hits me deepest. I remember his crooked smile when he opened that box, how his eyes got wide, and I gotta take a minute. I walk away with my fists clenched up tighter than double knots, Staring at the field lights till I blink blue copies onto the nearby garages doesn't do much for me. But it's something. When I look back to the asphalt and start walking it, I'm careful not to step on the tire marks that lead away from Ernesto like black railroad tracks. I understand the dragged thing now. He must have gone fifty, sixty feet on the asphalt after they beat him. Fuck that pinch of shit. I understand too good. First, they beat him. They put their fists through his face. Probably the butts of their guns, too, if they had him. They did this to a guy that never did nothing to them. They crossed a line when they did that. And only one thing about it made sense. They were trying to get at us instead. At Lil Mosco's stupid ass, most obviously and most likely. This was them sending a message. They just didn't think I'd be the first to get it. I'm so mad I'm shaking. All that anger I had for Ernesto, the same dude that raised me when mi padre died, that made sure I always ate up my chilaquiles and had a lunch for school every day. Change is over. I actually feel the click. I feel that shit deep inside me, like a light switch flicking on. How all the anger I had for my brother walking home the wrong way just goes away. And how, at the exact same moment, it blazes up at the fools that did this. And I need to know who did it worse than I ever needed anything. Seeing his face like that, shit. Seeing his face like that. I know I can never go back to who I was before I saw. These cowards made a new me when they did what they did to my big brother, my Ernesto. I'm standing here all reborn and shit because of them. Right now, 
I'm like starving and thirsting and burning all rolled up into one. I look at his face again, and I need to know who I need to do that to. I need to know whose hearts need holes to match the ones in mine. And I need that shit like five minutes ago. Out in public like this, fate calls shots. I force my hand to unclench. I force myself to walk back to him. It don't matter how much I'm feeling this. I can't be running my mouth out here. Can't ever be undercutting machismo. It doesn't work like that. I'm not even really a full foot soldier yet. Just related to one. And besides, women got no say-so. I can cry about it or work with it. I do that latter shit. But fate already knows what I want. It's like he's reading my mind. If you're good to, Bayasa, go talk at some people and keep doing what you're doing, clever. Fate nods at us both, then turns to the boy. The fuck were you doing out here, little homie? I don't hear his answer. Don't really care. I'm already ten steps closer to that nurse I seen before. She's standing right in the alley like she's expecting somebody to ask her questions. Four. This nurse, she's maybe five three, still in her hospital blues and wider than white, chunky shoes. She's got a scar on her chin, short hair like black nail polish shining under a street lamp, and blood on her, all down her front. What I think is, she tried to save him, and my brother's blood looks like purple on her smock, like not even real. You sleepy sister? Gloria? She nods. She knows I mean sleepy Rubio, not sleepy Argueta. There's a big difference. Sixty pounds, give or take. I am so sorry, Gloria says. I put on the calmest voice I can because she looks shaken up. It feels fake as fuck, but I got to. Tell me what you know. She hugs herself like she's cold and points at the nearest garage, some box that looks navy in the dark. I pulled in, was just going through my mail, you know. I don't pick it up enough, and... Gloria sees my got-no-time glare and speeds up. This car, it looked like a little truck with a bed and everything, went by fast. In the rear view, I saw it, and I saw something being dragged behind it, and I got out and looked, and when I saw it was a person, I just couldn't believe it. It was like something out of the movies. They stopped like... Four houses up, and two guys get out. I'm counting in my head. Out the driver's side, too? No, out the bed and the passenger door. So there was a driver who didn't get out? I guess. My eyes must have flashed at that because she backs up a little. I say, what'd the other two look like? I don't know. One was normal tall. I roll my eyes at that shit. Seems like the majority of people on Earth pay less attention than rocks. For us, though, you gotta pay attention in this crazy life. If you don't, you don't deserve breathing. But the other, 
Gloria says. He was taller than me. Six foot, maybe? I say, okay, that's good. But it isn't good. Not really. It's something, though. I try encouraging her, because it's what fate would do. He's better at it than I ever was. I nod up at her. Did you see their faces? Any marks or, like, anything out of the ordinary? No. It was dark. They wore sunglasses, though. I thought that was weird at night. What were they built like? What'd they wear? Built like normal, I guess. But the tall one was muscular, like he lifts a lot. They both wore black. Hats and everything. I couldn't see anything. That figures. When I do some evil shit to get some back for Ernesto, I'll probably be wearing black, too. What make of car was it? I don't know. Like a Cadillac or Ford? One of those long, boxy cars from the 70s or something. But did I say it had a bed to it? One of those half-car, half-truck things. It'd have anything different about it. Bumper stickers or a smashed taillight or whatever. Gloria squints her eyes for a second before saying, No. I shake my head and give up on that shit. Tell me what they did when they got out. She gasps a little. Won't look me in the eyes. They stabbed him. Like, a lot. Again and again. I never saw anything like that before. It makes a sound. Gloria shivers and chews her lip. She doesn't need to explain. It makes a sound all right. And it depends on how loud, if you're bouncing off ribs, or if somebody's holding their breath when you sink in. Don't even ask about cartilage. Truth. It ain't easy to stab somebody to death. It takes time. Sometimes it takes luck. It's way easier if they don't struggle. And maybe Ernesto was too hurt to do that. I bite the insides of my cheeks so hard I taste blood like burnt copper in my mouth. I'm shaking again, balling my fists up. How many times they stab him? I don't know, Gloria says. I nod and swallow trying to push my feelings down as low as they'll go, past my feet even, down into the ground. And then they just took off, right? It's what I would have done, in and out, nothing left behind, clean. I notice I got my fists balled up, so I force my fingers straight. I already know the answer to this question is a yes. No, Gloria says. My ears are ringing when I pounce on that shit. What do you mean? The tall one. He wiped off his knife and tucked it in the pouch of his sweatshirt. And then he took out some gum, put it in his mouth, and threw the wrapper. Or maybe he got the gum first? Wait. Hair on the back of my neck stands up. Where? She doesn't hear my question at first. She's still talking, her eyes far off and remembering. And then they all got in the car and... Hold up! I put a hand on her shoulder. Maybe it's too hard because she whimpers a little. Ask me if I fucking care.
Where did he throw it? Gloria starts and looks down at me. What? The gum wrapper. She points up the alley to the right of where fate is standing with the Serato kid. I start moving that way fast. She's trailing behind me, still talking. I tried to save him. I want you to know. But it was just too much. I shoot a look over my shoulder to see Gloria waving her hand at her nurse smock, at the blood marks, at Ernesto's. I should thank her. I can't. I'm too busy searching through weed clumps and kicking up pebbles till I find a white little ball of paper wadded up in a divot. It looks new. Brand new. My heart pounds up in my chest when I see how clean it is. Only a little wet on the bottom. Like it was recently chucked. This shit's definitely it. I turn. About to call for Clever, but he's right beside me holding out a baggie. Shit, he's good. On top of everything, I drop the thing in there. He's got a pair of long tweezers he uses to hold an edge and then presses his fingers through the plastic like a makeshift glove and unwraps it. The other side is blue. We both look close. There's some weird writing on it, like calligraphy or some shit. Fate's beside us too, then, pressing his face in. I say, Is that Oriental style? Like Korean writing? Nah, not Korean. Clever holds it up to the light. Looks Japanese. These letters are all sharp. Korean is the one with the circles. I don't know, but I nod anyway. What's it say? Clever unrolls it before tapping his tweezers on a picture of fruit in the middle. He narrows his eyes at it. Not sure. But doesn't that look like blueberries? Who the fuck chews blueberry Japanese gum around here? Put the word out. Big fate growls. He takes off toward the soldiers. We're about to find out. Everybody tell everybody. I walk back slow to Ernesto and look at the baggies Clever has lined up on the chipped asphalt. Six of them. One holds Ernie's wallet. I open it and check if there's still money in it. There is. This just makes my burning worse. When they didn't even bother faking a robbery, that's when you know that shit was a message. Not like you can fake anything when you beat somebody, drag them, and then stab them all cold-blooded. Shit. I pull his card and pictures of me, Ray, and Ernie when we were little. A picture of Mama, too. I put the wallet back in his pocket and leave the money so the sheriffs will know it wasn't a robbery. Only 23 bucks anyway. But I got to make them work for an ID. Buy us some time, just in case. By now, somebody's called 911. No telling how long it'll take for someone to come pick him up, though. My stomach actually convulses at the thought of him lying here for God knows how long. One hour? Two? I take my flannel off and cover his face with it. I lift his head up a little and put the sleeves underneath like a pillow. 
my hands come back bloody. After that, it's just clever grabbing baggies and me standing dumb right beside him, working up the courage to say what I got to. I lean down next to Ernesto, close enough to touch him. I close my eyes and I say, We'll get you buried good and right, big bro. I promise. But we can't just now, okay? So please forgive me just this one thing. I blink and close my eyes again. But only after I latch onto the only clean part left of his uniform, a seam on the right shoulder, near the collar. I squeeze it hard between my thumb and index finger. We need the time a little more right now is all. Thank you for listening to Harper Audio Presents, edited by Sharon Matlin. If you'd like to hear the next excerpt of the novel All Involved by Ryan Gaddis, we'll post an excerpt from day two on Tuesday, April 14th. This is Ryan Gaddis, the author of All Involved. Thank you so much for listening, but this isn't the whole story. To learn more of these characters, please check out the unabridged versions in print, audio, and ebook formats. Thank you for listening. <laughs>